and welcome to Girls Gone Canon, episode 52, John in a Clash of Kings, chapter one and intro. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. You know me every week on the internet at Lies and Arbor and at my blog, liesandarborgold.com. And I am another one of your hosts, Eliana, and you know me every other week as a glass table girl on the Song of Ice and Fire subreddit, on the Maester Monthly podcast, maybe as Arithmetric over on Twitter. Chloe, you're the only other host. Yes. <laughs> there, are, uh, there are only every weeks, but oh well. <laughs> we do this every week, Eliana, every week. But not next so week. So every other week. Not next so week. So I was right. Okay, so every other week, yes. Only this month. Is this foreshadowing? Uh, next week. I think so. No, it's character development. Oh, is it? Uh, <laughs> next week, you guys, we are not going to have a John episode releasing on May 31st, but we will have a surprise for you. So stay tuned. You'll see it when you see it. Mm-hmm. We will have also for patrons, $5 and up, an episode on prophecy that will be coming out next week for them. So check that out if you haven't been to our Patreon, patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. This will be the 10th episode for patrons, our 10th Patreon episode. Uh, we're really excited about that. Happy 10 months, guys. We could have had a baby. We didn't. We did. It was this podcast. Yes, and now it's 10 months old, 11 months it old. It is. Wait, no, our Patreon is our... Now it's over a year old. Congratulations to us and Patreon. Yes. And along with that exciting news, we are very jazzed to do this prophecy episode and not do a dance episode yet. <laughs> Once again... <laughs> We have an episode that came out together with Sarah Joe Buckley over on his podcast, Isle of Faces, which is an awesome podcast that interviews different people within the Song of Ice and Fire fandom. And also, he had a fantastically exciting announcement. Yes, so exciting. And I'm so bummed because he originally announced it on Drunk a Song of Ice and Fire History, my old pet project. But the episode has unfortunately been very delayed by a year and a half. It's hungover. Uh, you know, sometimes life is hard. It's very hungover. That episode is extremely hungover. <laughs> Joe understands. It's like a four episode long, or four hour long episode. So we're getting there. It might come out. But Joe has just finished and is publishing a book on the castles in Westeros, the great castles. Uh, any castle you'd want to look at from the noble lords, right? We're going to look at Winterfell, etc. Really excited to read that when it comes out and gets in my little greedy hands. Some beautiful illustration work as well. So congratulations, Joe, for publishing that book. We look forward to reading it. Yep, and the illustrations are done by Aranja or Anranya. Honestly, unsure how you pronounce it. It's called A-R-O-N-J-A. And it looks like it's going to be really fantastic, so we're very excited, and congratulations, Joe. Yeah, he is just one of the nicest humans, and he's so smart, so knowledgeable. You might know him from uh, writing on Tower of the Hand, yes. or also from some of his writings he does with History of Westeros, some really good esteemed people in this community that write some great stuff, and he is one of them. So check out Isle of Faces. You can check him out on Podbean, isleoffaces.podbean.com. And along with that shout-out, we have some other emails and tweets of note this week. User Imperium16 on Twitter says, I absolutely adore the discussion. John is such a drama queen with all the <laughs> no one loves me, I'm all alone crap laughing emoji. And I'm just, calm down, princess. Literally, everyone loves you. Get a grip. Laughing emoji again. This is such a cute chapter with just everyone being kind and considerate. Yeah, I love that it's just teenagers at their most teenageriest. 
even boys, you know, everyone's always like, teenage girls are the worst. And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I think John can change your mind. <laughs> I like that Imperium's like, literally everyone loves you. <laughs> right. Like, he's literally the world's favorite bowl of porridge. So I'm just kidding. He was really interesting in these two books. There are some really good bowls of porridge, though. I'm going to throw that out there. Like, Arascaldo and Kanji, Avialemino. You know, I even like to go real classic. Some some raisins, you know, oh. some some craisins, some dried craisins in there with some brown sugar and a little butter and a tiny bit of milk and just... Mm. Mm. More of a savory. Yep. Anyways. Mm, see, I'm not a savory, oh, wow. not a savory well, porridge. Well, you and I, uh, this is, we balance each other out. We did get another great tweet from our good friend Mary, Maester Mary, M-A-E-S-T-E-R-M-E-R-R-Y. If you haven't checked out her work, please be sure to. She can be found on YouTube, on her blog at upfromunderwinterfell.wordpress.com. Give her a look online. She's fun. She's got some great discussions and theories. And she said, love your discussion of John's friends rescuing him from his angsty teen self. It's amazing that this theme, the friends that save us from ourselves, resonates across the series and even with the show. A Game of Thrones, the book, is so good and my heart needed this cast this morning. I get you, girl. I get you. I think everyone needs a little reprieve. uh, Just a step back from the the show, the great show, my favorite show in the whole world. (laughs) I mean, the last chapter was Jane the Virgin. No, I'm just wait. Yes, okay. <laughs> um, while we're talking about Jane the Virgin, because now I've decided, fuck this. First of all, right now at this moment in the books, we are technically a John the Virgin. But anyway, um, <laughs> oh, thank smart. you, thank that's you. Um, and yes, uh, he he continues to be one in this chapter. He decides not to go to Molestown, and I love that point that the friends save us from ourselves and it is it was a very pure chapter yeah it's his new wolf pack right the pack survives yes and we had another great comment from warren dudson aka the hedge knight longtime friend big time fan of girls gone canon hi warren bigger time mom our he, mother, Warren He thinks Dudson. we're his moms, but really Warren's our mom. Hello, mom. Really, like, maybe Warren was the mom we made Actually, he is, isn't he? <laughs> Hi, Warren. Uh, Warren says, Normally I'm raving about arithmetic voices in Girls Gone Canon, and her J.R. Mormont is exceptional. Thank you. Um, but the ease with which Liza and Arbor switches into a northern English Jon Snow and out again is mightily impressive. Tune in, folks. You won't regret it. And yes... Chloe, your Jon Snow is great. And you, well, there was another there Thank was you. another voice you did last time that I thought was really awesome. And I was like, oh. It was Pycelle? Was it Pycelle in the show we talked about? It was the show episode. Yes. We talked about his line about eunuchs and cravens and women and poison. Yes, I think that's what it was. And I was like, damn. We should have had you do Yeah, missed opportunity. I, it really but was. It, it'll come back. It'll come back. Someday we'll get Tyrion and Cersei and we'll get some more Pycelle for you. One Don't day. worry. I'll, I'll serve you up some Pycelle. Some I'll free Pycelle. Yeah. Some fray by cell. You know, uh, I'm, I'm not trying to make it a competition, but I'm just saying, coming for your throne, Eliana. Coming for your throne. You know, it can be shared. You know, I'm not, we can have a, we have a marriage alliance. It's fine. That's true. We don't care about incest. Wait, you're not my aunt. Never mind. <laughs> just also sister, whatever. Two moms. Anyways. Oh, my sister yes. wife. But that lands us at the overview of John. In A Clash of Kings. In A Clash of Kings, John has to do some more choosing, right? That's uh, that's the name of the game for John. Choose some more. <laughs> yes. Is he on a train 
Oh, look at all these choo-choos. <laughs> I have no regrets. But yeah, as you said, A Clash of Kings continues a lot of what happened in John's first book, and it combines it with John finally get- going on that adventure that he longed for. And now that he's chosen duty and service, he has to choose a lot of little more nuanced things within it. These manifest in many different ways, such as through Egret. We see what those choices look like with Corn Halfhand and those consequences, but we also see what it means to choose duty and service through other characters like Squire Dalbridge. Bless. That's Eliana's character of this whole entire book. Absolutely. He, he also tells them to give an apple to his horse. What a good guy. He is. John could have really learned from him before not touching his dog. Uh, I love that Clash of Kings is kind of like the feast to Agot, right? Like, mm. Clash is, uh, everyone's picking up the pieces. Our patriarch has died. Our lead hero was actually not the hero the whole time, and he was killed. And now all these characters have to pick up the pieces after the storm. They have to pick up all the rotting carcasses and choose. Choose and choice is a huge, huge theme in A Clash of Kings. You have Sansa with the Blackwater and choosing, you know, Sandor comes to her room and tries to take her away. And does she choose Sandor or does she wait for Dantos, which she thinks might be a safer bet? You have Jon choosing his loyalty. You know, you were wrong to love her, you were wrong to leave her is a great line that comes up in Storm. And you have other characters, too, choosing what king to follow, for example, between Renly and Stannis, and of course with Cersei's regime with her children. It's interesting that the whole book just outlines what will you do and how far will you go when duty calls for you. And of course, we'll come back to this throughout this chapter, but another character who has to make a lot of choices in The Clash of Kings is Theon Greyjoy. But you all already know about how we feel about Theon Greyjoy and his choices. I love him so much. I know. I miss him. I miss you, Theon. My paralarvae. <laughs> oh, you're a good man, yeah. Theon Greyjoy. Okay, you're done. <laughs> so what we missed between the end of A Game of Thrones, which we did do a lightning round last episode to tell you what chapters end the book after John. this time what we've missed since the start of Clash of Kings, we begin with the prologue. Maester Cresson recalls the kings that he once knew as boys, and he attempts to murder a red priestess. It costs him his life. Arya 1. Arya has taken on a new identity, traveling north to the Night's Watch with Yorin. Sansa 1. Sansa attends Joffrey's name day tourney, and she saves Sir Dantos Hollard's life. Tyrion 1. Cersei grudgingly accepts Tyrion as hand and Varys discovers Tyrion's latest secret. It's a girl. (laughs) (laughs) What is it not? Bran 1. Resenting his broken body, Bran listens to the wolves howl, and he dreams in Summer's skin. Arya 2. Gold cloaks come to arrest Arya's friend, Gendry! Don't know him. <laughs> Overview <laughs> of John 1 in A Clash of Kings. Sam has found maps that will help the men beyond the wall on their ranging. John and Donald Noy discuss the new recruits, watching them train, and then Lord Commander Jor and John chat about Maester Aemon's past. The air smelled of paper and dust and years. Before him, tall wooden shelves rose up into dimness, crammed with leather-bound books and bins of ancient scrolls. A faint yellow glow filtered through the stacks from some hidden lamp. John blew out the taper he carried, preferring not to risk an open flame amidst so much old, dry paper. Instead, he followed the light, wending his way down the narrow aisles beneath barrel-vaulted ceilings. 
Mm, that library porn. I love it. Love it. Yes. I can't wait for Sam chapters because he's basically all of us. I mean, yes, but also let's be real. We've been treating all of these chapters basically like Sam chapters ever since he <laughs> showed up. Yeah, well, that's the unity between them. I mean, yes, exactly. They're BFFs, even if... Brothers. Oh, yes. An even deeper bond. John finds Sam in the library, where Sam has likely been up all night, and John actually didn't believe Rass saying that Sam deserted because he thinks that Sam has no courage to desert. Just like, what the fuck? Well, we'll, we'll come back to this. Yeah. And then John calls Sam a sweet fool for not sleeping in his bed and is like, you're going to miss it when we're out there on the cold, hard ground. But turns out Sam's been looking at a lot of things. He was supposed to be finding maps and he found some, including ones from before the conquest. It reminds me of when I was a kid and my parents would be like, go clean your room. And then I'd like start playing with Barbies or read books instead. That's what it reminds me of. Like, Sam, go find this stuff. Sam, but I found all this stuff instead. Like, I remember like... Parents come in and I just be like, I am cleaning them. I'm organizing their clothes. Yes. Very <laughs> slowly. Me putting the books in the bookshelf. I'm not reading it. I wonder if these conquest maps are going to come back into play mm -hmm. during some of the wars to come, maybe. Uh, I don't know. Maybe there will be some maps there about different like places around the country slash nation and different keeps and little ins and outs and secrets. Not just Casterly Rock, which we'll probably get a view of from Tyrion with the pipes and drains, but uh, I wonder if there's just secrets in this map from before the conquest. Here's a tinfoil, but kind of fun. What if there's one of all the different tunnels that run underneath Westeros? I don't know. But yeah, I, I do think we get the sense that these might come back into play, especially because Sam keeps finding other books that do. Mm -hmm. It reminds me a lot of Daenerys' books that she has gifted at her wedding from Jorah, it makes me wonder, you know, what's in those books that Danny so desperately needs. Of course, George R. R. Martin has said that, you know, Fire and Blood, the novel that came out last November, that would be a book that Danny should consider reading about her ancestors. It would be a very enriched history that she might do well from reading. Yeah, but it's long as fuck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we haven't even finished doing the dance episodes, Chloe. <sighs> Uh, John then suggests that maybe Sam should write an account of the ranging, and turns out this is a misstep because Sam's like, oh shit, the ranging. Yeah, it's not where Sam wants to be whatsoever. I love that there's that cheesy kind of cute idea slash theory that Sam will, you know, write this all at the end and it'll be a book of a song of ice and fire in the annals. And I, I do love that Sam is constantly documenting things like this ranging, something that will go down in the history of Westeros in the future. Not the podcast. Yeah, not the podcast. It could. It might go down. Oh. It's been technically on a meta level. This is what is in the history of Westeros wow. podcast. Yes. Thank you, Sam. But... <laughs> If the Alexandria, I mean the Citadel, burns down, <laughs> then they're going to need new history, mm -hmm. right? And they need people to rewrite and to copy and create other books and tomes. And Sam might just be a, a maester-esque figure in charge of that. We don't know. For sure. Though, something that I cannot imagine is Sam writing himself down in the books and being like, yes, and then Sam the Slayer took down another <laughs> you know yeah I, I doubt that i doubt Someone that he'll else. probably like he'll probably write it and then he'll like rip the page out and put it in his pocket and then he'll be like i'm so embarrassed and someone else will have to like make the song for him about that <laughs> it also reminds me of jamie with the white book for example mm -hmm. too and how he hopes that one day he's going to be called golden hand the just and i'm like that's cute yeah maybe you know Stop banging your sisters, stop pushing kids out of towers, and we'll uh, find you in the winds of winter. We'll see what's up. Yeah, see what's up. 
But until then, Sam explains why all this information that seems trivial needs to be recorded. An inventory, Sam said, or perhaps a bill of sale. Who cares how much pickled cod they ate 600 years ago? John wondered. I would. Sam carefully replaced the scroll in the bin from which John had plucked it. You can learn so much from ledgers like that. Truly, you can. It can tell you how many men were the Night's Watch then, how they lived, what they ate. They ate food, John said, and they lived as we live. You'd be surprised. This vault is a treasure, John. Truly, Jon Snow knows nothing because this would obviously come in handy during the long night they're about to go through. But John doesn't know that's a thing yet. He just has seen the others. But truly, this is this is very important stuff right here that Sam is looking at. It turns out knowledge is power. And it's something that is important that even like historians and anthropologists look for nowadays, right? They're like, how were the lives of earlier humans and how did those ch- things change? So, and on top of that, I love that this passage is outlined straight up like us book readers with all of our friends going, you fucking nerds. That's yeah. straight up. John's like, you nerd, they ate food. Like, what do you want from this scroll? Just go eat a sandwich. Yeah. <laughs> Sam is worried about returning to the ranging, and John says that the great ranging comprises 200 men, three-fourths of which are rangers, so 150 if you're short at math like I am. Thanks, Eliana, for doing it for me. Corin is bringing another hundred men with him from the Shadow Tower. You'll be as safe as if you were back in your Lord Father's castle at Horn Hill. Samuel Tarly managed a sad little smile. I was never very safe in my father's castle, either. Well, Sam, then button up, because you're doing better here. Yeah, actually, is Sam- turns out, is Sam kind of safer on the other side of the wall? Thoughts. <laughs> I mean, he has a guardian. He has Jon Snow and his friends now, so- I think he's a lot safer than he'd be at Horn Hill. No one's going to let him be chained up to a wall and put bull's blood poured all over him. Yeah, I mean, the wall's too far behind him. That's why he's on the other side. <laughs> you could never get the chains that deep in the wall either. You know, That's he'd true. totally pull them out. Or his body heat would melt where they were. They'd totally come out. Ooh, or he gets stuck, you know, like when you put your like tongue against a frozen pole or something. I would never do that because I've seen what happens. But anyways... A lot of this actually centers around John thinking of how other people would actually be more suited for this ranging than Sam, based on how terrified Sam seems to be of this. And John sees him very much as timidly and a coward and bad at like shit, like going on ranging and riding a horse. But they need to bring him because someone has to be out there to tend to the ravens and write things if something happens. And finally, Sam actually voices his own fears about it. We're all scared. We'd be fools if we weren't. Too many rangers have been lost the past two years, even Benjamin Stark, John's uncle. They had found two of his uncle's men in the wood, slain, but the corpses had risen in the chill of night. John's burnt fingers twitched as he remembered. He still saw the white in his dreams, dead Othor with the burning blue eyes and cold black hands, but that was the last thing Sam needed to be reminded of. There's no shame in fear, my father told me. What matters is how we face it. Yeah, I like this because John is thinking so much about Sam's fear throughout this chapter that because it's played up, it makes it that much more impactful when Sam actually does slay another because this is something that he's actively overcoming. Or even when he, like, in a few chapters decides, like, hey, I'm going to go talk to Gilly. And everyone's like, what the <laughs> fuck are you doing? We don't talk to Crasser's daughter wives. Uh <laughs> But, like, part of what's so great about John's storyline, though, I think, and his character is that 
through characters like Sam or a lot of his other mentors, he's always having his worldview questioned. And a lot of times it's in this guided manner. And he always has to reassess his worldview. And I think that's part of what makes John also very lovable as a character. Because when his worldview is questioned, he doesn't dig into it or be like, oh, no, they were wrong. He learns from it. He internalizes these lessons and he steps up and does better. And you can see that this lesson about fear is something that Ned taught his kids in many different ways. And John, as well as Sam, is very much facing his fear by going beyond the wall, especially after what he's experienced and these nightmares that he continues to have about the whites. Yeah, and you even see his growth, obviously, in Sam. In this chapter, he still thinks he's craven, he's cowardly, but by the time we get to the end of Clash of Kings, John will feel much differently about Sam. Yes. After going through tunnels and climbing, John recalls seeing the White Raven, marking the end of summer and the beginning of fall. Once before, John had seen winter, but it was very short. The wall is described as the end of the world, and it feels like a living, breathing thing. And of course, he thinks, and we are going beyond it. The Red Comet is above, and before the big trip, the rangers kind of head out to Molestown, you know, uh, digging for buried treasure, kind of trying to get their jimmies, get their dick wet a little, you know, <laughs> shake it off before they get into the ranging and battle and murdering some wildlings. Yep. I, I think it's funny that earlier Sam talks about the library and all of the books and there is a treasure. And then here we have that play on words again, where we're reminded that Molestown is talked about as digging for buried treasure. And I I think that there's maybe an aspect of this that's setting up that dragon class cache that they find later on, but in the idea that like there are multiple ways to interpret what is a treasure, like dragon glass obsidian doesn't seem like that mm. cool, but I think it's for me. I'm seeing it as in even within this chapter, you know, we're getting different views of what it means to be king, what p different people want when it comes to duty, and just the idea of what is valuable to different people. Yeah, that's a great call. I didn't actually think about that with a digging for buried treasure kind of idea. That's perfect. It has to be some sort of little wordplay setup in that situation. You just situation. have to live your life in puns. Yeah, I, I try. I really do. I know. I know. I'm following the good lord like I'm intended to, but... You're part of, <laughs> part of my world. John and Sam both want nothing to do with going to the brothel, though. Some men want whores on the eve of battle, and some want gods. John wondered who felt better afterward. The sept tempted him no more than the brothel. His own gods kept their temples in the wild places where the weirwoods spread their bone-white branches. The seven have no power beyond the wall, he thought, but my gods will be waiting. I thought this was a, a nice line because, first of all, yes, we all know that the wildlings still keep the old gods, and turns out, yes, there's a lot of skin changing and things that are associated with the old gods up north, but I like the idea that the Seven have no power beyond the wall because we've discussed before how it seems like the Seven doesn't have any magics behind it, unlike some of the other religions, but... There is a very sociopolitical power behind the faith of the seven, but beyond the wall, if no one keeps it, then there's none of that power there either. Absolutely. And it keeps that idea that the old gods are watching him, mm. which we know turns out to be Blood Raven and Bran later on. Oh, his brother. Mm -hmm. Then we have Sir Andrew Tarth, who actually we don't know how he's related to Brienne. We just know he's a Tarth. He's a master at arms while Sir Alistair Thorne is away, thank God. And he's the one who's teaching the new recruits. Then Sir Donald Noy comes up and makes some small talk with John about Rob. 
Rob is now a king. This is reminding us of, you know, all that shit that happened at the end of A Game of Thrones. And John's like, he's gonna be a good one. And they, like, use the word loyally to describe how John says that. Noi then warns John that he thought the same, actually, of Robert Baratheon, but warns that kings are never the same once they put on that crown. And, of course, we get that iconic line of how Robert is the steel, Stannis is the iron, and Renly is the copper... Yeah, and John thinks, and what metal is Rob? John did not ask. Noy was a Baratheon man. Likely, he thought Joffrey the lawful king and Rob a traitor. Among the Brotherhood of the Night's Watch, there was an unspoken pact never to talk about politics. I mean, never to probe too deeply into <laughs> such matters. Men came to the wall from all of the Seven Kingdoms, and old loves and loyalties were not easily forgotten, no matter how many oaths a man swore. As John himself had good reason to know, even Sam, his father's house, was sworn to Highgarden, whose Lord Tyrell supported King Renly. Best not to talk of such things, the Night's Watch took no sides. They make you swear and swear. Fuck. Shit. <sighs> Damn. Oh. Not, not that. Not that. Imagine if that was what it was about. Oh my god. So... The last book was obviously really about choice, uh, just like the themes that continue into this book of choice, especially with different kings. But this book is also who are you and what are you? Donald Noy is almost passively asking him, what kind of king would you choose or what kind of king would you be? Are you steel? Are you iron or are you copper? This follows through with the setup of the trajectory for Stannis in John's plot later on in A Dance with Dragons, and him being kind of a warning of John in his rule, how to rule, how not to rule, and also sets that stage well for John's kill the boy moment in A Dance with Dragons. But for now, it's a perfect stage setting for John's excursion beyond the wall and his loyalties that are very difficult to choose between. Yes, I love that you point to that kill the boy moment because... In a way, it's not even just about being a king, but definitely about power, because you see this in Thorin Smallwood, who we're going to see in like a minute, uh, making an entrance, wanting to be first ranger. And of course, John has some power when he's Lord Commander. And there's definitely, I think, a discussion within John's storyline of how power changes people, whether it's a king or as Lord Commander. Different people bring different things to it, depending on who they are, whether it's entitlement or, like, responsibility or the toll that that power takes on them. And, like, interestingly, I think it's funny that both of these quote-unquote half-brothers, John and Rob, respond similarly to power uh, when outsiders look at them because they both become so much more withdrawn from the people around them. They feel they they look so burdened by that responsibility and that I think contrasts greatly with Theon Greyjoy, who does also be become a little more isolated, but he gets both power and freedom for the first time in a very long time in his chapters that, uh, you know, are paralleling John's here in Clash. But when he takes power, he builds it pretty fucking irresponsibly. Yeah, John has seen so many people abuse their power. He's seen what happens when you play with power from his father. And I mean, on a meta level, his actual father too, obviously. So John is very careful about that power. If you pay attention through the books, mm -hmm. he doesn't want that. He doesn't want a crown. He says no to Winterfell. Uh, it's interesting that John is always, like you've talked about, reluctant leader, not accepting the rulership how you think he would. But he's not the same reluctant leader as what we get with, like, Robert, for example. Sure, yes, you're right. There's there's a difference. Like, he's a reluctant leader, and he treats it as a responsibility. His duty. Yeah, exactly, as his duty, whereas Robert's like, I don't want this, and thus runs from that duty. 
Yes. I also wanted to point out, just because we were talking about Theon, uh, and by we I mean I guess me, whatever. Uh, in ter- terms of in terms of people not forgetting some of those loyalties and connections upon joining the Night's Watch. I, it reminds me of Barbary Dustin talking about who were the fucking maesters before they became maesters, okay? Like, I don't know. This is suspicious. And they're all rats. They're all scurrying off with your ravens and your words. <laughs> I'm imagining a little rat carrying a raven right now. I think the raven would carry off or kill the rat, whatever. Anyways. Still a better maester than Pycelle. True. True, true, true. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> That just sank sank in. Anyways, Sam, uh, as we're heading up to J.R. Mormont's quarter, says, I hate stairs, and I just really want to point out this parallel, yeah, to both Chloe and Anakin Skywalker (laughs) saying, I don't like sand. Coincidence? I think not. Obviously, George wrote this purposefully. Both Georges. (laughs) There you go, Lucas and Martin. Mm. Thorin Smallwood, who Eliana just foreshadowed. Just kidding, she talked about it. My character developed Uh, him. You care to give a stop. You know, honestly, inside the episode, Eliana almost forgot that Thorin Smallwood existed. I forgot that Thorin Smallwood was a POV character. Oh my god. <laughs> Thorin Smallwood says that he's first ranger now, and J.R. Mormont's like, uh, no you're not. I'm going on this ranging and you're not the first ranger. What the fuck? Yeah. And... I just love this line where Jeremiah goes, First Ranger. The old bear's eyes lighted on Sam. I'd sooner name you First Ranger. <laughs> I'm like, God damn. He must really think Thorn Smallwood's super unqualified if he's like, I'd rather make Sam. I that I just really wanted to have that line in here. <laughs> I love the rest of that line though. He's like, he has the effrontery to tell me to my face that I'm too old to ride with him. Do I look old to you, boy? And then like everything from John's chapter in the interiority, he's like, uh, you look <laughs> and he's like, shut the fuck up. But like That's like if your dad is like, Do I look like an idiot to you, son? Yeah. And you're like, yes. <laughs> Yeah, but, like, everything, like, a- after he says that, J- John's just like, well, he has all these spots on his, like, balding head. <laughs> and he's like, uh, uh, uh. Like, you are kind of old, JR. Oh, John. Def- defo gonna die. I mean, yeah, but not because he's old, because- but because his men are treasonous. Anyway, the maps that Sam brings are also old. Um, and Joe's like, what the fuck is this? And John says, it's fine, it's fine. The villages might have moved and stuff, but the hills and the rivers are still the same. And then Sam leaves, and is just like, yeah, is that boy, like, good for anything? Which really, really, I think, brings that line again where he would rather make Sam first ranger into focus once more. (laughs) Over... Freaking Thor and Smallwood. Yeah, I'm like, wow. Anyways, and then we learned that JR actually had a thought to send Sam down to treat with Renly because we know that Randall Charlie is high up in Renly's camp right now, and but JR was worried that Renly wouldn't listen to Sam, and so he decides instead to send Sarah Arnell, who is a green apple fossaway. I love the yeah. green apple fossaways. They are your favorites. Interestingly enough, Sir Arnell is never mentioned again in the story outside of, like, sending him down to treat with Renly. Mm. So I guess my headcanon is, like, did he make it? Did he desert? I like to think maybe he deserted for Renly because, I mean, think about it. If somebody came to Renly with, like, a zombie hand or, like, tried to get support from him, what would he really do? Like, Renly would be like, oh, you should get out of the Night's Watch. You would look better in a rainbow cloak. Come join us. Yeah, Renly's the kind of person to be like, fuck your vows. (laughs) 
come hang yeah, out. Renly doesn't care about the Night's Watch, obviously. He cares about the latest fashions. Yeah. And then J.R. Mormont says of the things that he would have asked from Renly, like, the same things I'd have of all of them, lad, men, horses, swords, armor, grain, cheese, wine, wool, nails. These are a lot of things. Mm-hmm. No wonder. Um, the Night's Watch is not proud. We take what is offered. His fingers drummed against the rough-hewn planks of the table. If the winds have been kind, Sir Elisar should reach King's Landing by the turn of the moon. But whether this boy Joffrey will pay him any heed, I do not know. House Lannister has never been a friend to the Watch. Thorn has the White's hand to show them. A grisly pale thing with black fingers, it was, that twitched and stirred in its jar as if it were still alive. Would that we had another hand to send to Renly. Of course, as we learned, Renly is copper. He would never take the hand seriously, even if they had one. Yeah, probably not. He'd just be like, that's not my fucking problem. But I, what I love about this scene is we see J.R. making a lot of these decisions, and it goes well with John thinking earlier about how Donald Noy is still a Baratheon man who probably supports Joffrey. And even though the brothers of the Night's Watch renounced their old houses and loyalties, it would be, I think, pretty foolish for a Lord Commander not to keep track of these things. Like, J.R. Mormont's keeping track of a lot of things that are going on in the realm, and knows where Randall Tarly is and stands, and that, of course, makes it easier kind of for someone who's of more noble birth then to become Lord Commander than someone who isn't because they've had those things taught to them. But also that shows how the Lord Commander needs to use all of these resources and politicking, not just internally within the Night's Watch with their own men, but also externally and keeping those things in mind, those powers that they're beholden to. And you're going to see that, of course, later on in John's storyline when Stannis comes north. Yeah. But first we learn about Mage Mormont, who took a bear for a lover from Jayor. So uh, Mage, his sister, and we learn she is the mother to many, many great Mormont characters like Daisy and Alisan. Yes, absolutely. And funny enough, there's actually someone in the story who's called Husband to Bears. Oh, is there? Yeah, who's claimed to have fucked a bear. Uh, I'll read a couple of these quotes. The more I drank, the more I got thinking about this woman lived close by. A fine, strong woman with the biggest pair of teats you ever saw. She had a temper on her, that one, but oh, she could be warm too, and in the deep of winter, a man needs his warmth. Thank you. That was my torment. I don't know. I guess it was good. Yeah, I like it. And then, of course, there's another passage, a longer one. The woman had a terrible temper, and she put up quite the fight when I laid hands on her. It was all I could do to carry her home and get her out of them furs, but when I did, oh, she was hotter than I even remember. And we had a fine old time, and then I went to sleep. Next morning when I woke, the snow had stopped and the sun was shining, but I was in no fit state to enjoy it. All ripped and torn I was, and she had me member bit right off, and there on me floor was a she-bear's pelt. And soon enough, the free folk were telling tales of this bald bass seen in the woods with the queerest pair of cubs behind her. Har! He slapped his meaty thigh. Would that I could find her again. She was fine to lay with that bear. Never was a woman give me such a fight, nor such strong sons, neither. It's Tormund! Yes. I mean, I agree. I think it's Tormund. And yeah, Mage totally brags about it, too. And like... I would like to take this time to remind everyone, first of all, that Mage Mormont is alive in the books, and she is probably one of the people who's carrying Rob's will north, you know, the the will that, like, crowns John. and I think that's kind of interesting with all this talk of kings in this book, but anyway, Mage is- You mean the, the clash of kings? Oh, wow. 
Oh, wow. I'll be here all night. <laughs> Major goes north with the will. And maybe she goes all the way up north to the person who's been crowned with it, not just to Winterfell and to John, who may or may not be dead at this point in time. Unsure. But I, who else is here at the ball but this this guy, Tormund, husband to bears, and Rob's will, I'm just saying, is an elaborate plot shipping device. And nothing's going to convince me otherwise because <laughs> we stand the books, all right? The books where Mage and Tormund belong together. Pour one out for Mage, hated and quitted Mormont. She just, she slept with him and she left. You know, I don't know. I mean, I think that they really, uh, it's a nice fun detail they added into these books after adapting it from the TV show, but uh, I don't know. I, I think it's a fun Easter egg we'll never hear about. And honestly, if we really want to go that far, I mean, that will has stopped in the neck. It pretty much stopped at Moat Caitlin, and I'm guessing that it's likely that Ned's bones and the will are in Howland's home in Greywater Watch, in Bongwater Watch. Uh, yeah, yeah. I did <laughs> it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I'll be here all night. I think it's likely it all stopped in Greywater Watch, and I think that Howland is preserving Ned's bones, because we do see people like Barbary, who do not want Ned's bones to make it north, have no respect for him, uh, are utilizing power over Ned's soul and body, and I I'm wondering if maybe that's where the buck has stopped. I think that John will be crowned without the will. I think it's possible. I just think that Mage is going to have to make it north anyway, and there's still something with her plot regarding that, especially if we still have Lyanna Mormont, who's still on Bear Island out here sending out notes, so... Maybe, but we also don't know if Mage is still alive, because... Last time we saw her, she was in Moat Caitlin and Ironborn, and who knows? Lizard so lions. Hopefully, fingers crossed. Yes, we uh, we're reminded of John's hand. He's flexing it. It hurts from fighting the dead. Jor says to John that Aemon was almost once king, as they chat, which surprises John. And we get this huge info dump on the Targaryen family history. Yes, yeah, so we're gonna start with this quote and start summarizing everything else. His father's father was Daron Targaryen, the second of his name, who brought Dorne into the realm. Part of the pact was that he wed a Dornish princess. She gave him four sons. Aemon's father, Makar, was the youngest of those, and Aemon was his third son. Mind you, all this happened long before I was born. Ancient as Smallwood would make me. <laughs> so I know. Salty. The salty old bear. Aemon was named for Aemon the Dragon Knight, though not so knightly himself, obviously. Knight of the Mind. Uh, it reminds me, yes, Knight of the Mind. Fight every battle in your mind, Aemon, everywhere. Oh my God, I uh, a, a very wise man you. once said that in the show. Why would you do that? It reminds me of this chapter, this passage in John 13 in A Storm of Swords when he's thinking about Rob when they were fighting. Every morning they had trained together, since they were big enough to walk, snow and stark, spinning and slashing about the wards of Winterfell, shouting and laughing, sometimes crying when there was no one else to see. They were not little boys when they fought, but knights and mighty heroes. I'm Prince Aemon the Dragon Knight, John would call out, and Rob would shout back, well, I'm Florian the Fool, or Rob would say, I'm the young dragon, and John would say, I'm Sir Ryan Redwine. It very much so highlights John's journey, as we know he is, you know, the the son of Lyanna and Rhaegar. That's just canon. We've already talked about it. But if you haven't listened to us since the last book of John chapters, let's remind you, R plus L equals J is literally it. So this really outlines, you know, I'm Prince Aemon the Dragon Knight and Rob saying I'm the young dragon. And it's the same kind of exposition of Darren and Aemon. Yes, it, it is. And just also showing where John's place was 
playing second fiddle to Rob. Always. Always. And then, you know, again, info dump. We go down the line of how Aemon Targaryen was almost king. His eldest uncle, the heir apparent, was slain in a tourney mishap. And we all know that that's Baylor Breakspear because there are, like, a bunch of novellas. Which I think they, that, yes, can, and that came out right after Clash, right? Yes, absolutely. The the very first did. And I love the passage from the Mystery Night where Dunk, you know, is remembering Baylor. And it's, and all at once the years fell away. And Dunk was back at Ashford Meadow once again, listening to Baylor Breakspear just before they went forth to battle for his life. Wow, just rip my mm. heart out, why don't you? Very sad. It is. Oh, Baylor Breakspear. And Baylor Breakspear's sons also passed soon after he did during the Great Spring Sickness. And then King Darren at that time also died soon after during that sickness. And then the crown passed to Ares. And John's like, the Mad King? That seems off. And then he's like, no, oh, that first yeah, one. Yeah, there were two of them. That's why it was the second. And this happened about 80 years or so, according to J.R. And then during all this time, over in, like, I don't know, some, some cutaway, Aemon is forging his links and taking his vows while Aerys and his sister rule. And then uh, Aerys died without a child. Yeah, so then Maker, Aemon's dad, becomes king. Maker would have liked to have Aemon as his maester, but Aemon refused. He didn't want to usurp the current Grand Maester. So he served with his eldest brother, Darren, instead, who also died, and he left a feeble-witted daughter, which was named Viaea. So interesting enough, um, most of the Targaryen females that have A-E-L-L-A as the suffix of their name, so Aella or Aella, however you want to pronounce it, they're generally portrayed as weak or feeble characters. Have you noticed that? There's Aenys and Alyssa, who had a Viaea, who died young and weak. Uh, this Viaea was feeble-witted, as we just read, and her claim was actually dismissed in the 233 Great Council as a claim to the throne. And then, of course, we also have Alisan and Daea, her daughter, Alisan and Jaehaerys' daughter, Daea, who was sweet and feeble as well, yeah. and died very younger after childbirth and, you know, wasn't able to hold up. And then we do have Rayala or Raya, however you want to pronounce that as well. So just interesting what they kind of portray these characters as. That there's only a handful with the A E L L A suffix, and I found that found that interesting. Yeah, it might be something George is playing with. Um, I also want to call out. I'm just pleased that we live in an age where we have all these internet resources and trees. Like, because someone somewhere pieced together this fucking family tree from this passage. Like, if you think about it, some wild yeah. shit. And then after all of them, there was Irian who <laughs> died drinking wildfire in an attempt to become a dragon. And Woo! his reputation uh, succeeds him because yeah. John definitely yeah. remembers, oh, yeah, that guy, that guy was crazy. Yeah, he has no clue. <laughs> and then there's Maker, who died fighting an outlaw lord. That was the year of the Great Council, he said. The lords passed over Prince Arian's infant son and Prince Darren's daughter and gave the crown to Aegon. Yes and no. First they offered it quietly to Aemon, and quietly he refused. The gods meant for him to serve, not to rule, he told them. He had sworn a vow and would not break it, though the High Septon himself offered to absolve him. Well, no sane man wanted any blood of Arians on the throne, and Darren's girl was a lackwit besides being female, so they had no choice. Oh, heaven forbid! But to turn to Aemon's younger brother, Aegon, the fifth of his name. Aegon the Unlikely, they called him, born the fourth son of a 
for certain, Eamon knew, and rightly, that if he remained at court, those who disliked his brother's rule would seek to use him. So he came to the wall, and here he has remained while his brother and his brother's son and his son each reigned and died in turn until Jamie Lannister put an end to the line of the Dragon Kings. King! croaked the raven. The bird flapped across the solar to land on Mormont's shoulder. King! it said again, strutting back and forth. He likes that word, John said, smiling. An easy word to say. An easy word to like. King! the bird said again. I think he means for you to have a crown, my lord. <laughs> the realm has three kings already, and that's too, too many for my liking. An easy word to say, an easy word to like. I like that. I like that line from J.R. Yeah. I just don't, I don't know, is there foreshadowing? I don't know, what does the burb mean, Chloe? What does it mean? Well, I speak full burb, so let me break it down for you. Oh. I think he's talking about a king. Is it J.R.? It's J.R., right? Yeah, J.R. King. J.R. King. <laughs> it couldn't be the guy with questionable parentage. No. Why would it ever be Jon Snow? There was a line that stood out to me as we were reading this aloud uh, in terms of things that are going on in the, the show that these books are based off of, where they talk about how Aemon refused to remain at court because those who disliked Aegon's rule would seek to use him against them, or seek to use Aemon against Aegon. And I think that's very reminiscent, right, of how Varys and Tyrion seem to be using, especially Varys, mostly. And seem to be using John against Sansa. Danny in the show. Yeah, yeah. Use- yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, people that mean to use that rule and that name. And we obviously see that with the Puppet King, with Aegon uh, the Sixth possibly coming up here. We see that with him as well, them using him. So the puppet strings are definitely there. And I think there's a great correlation with Aemon to John in this chapter. Absolutely, you know, not wanting to rule whether it be the throne or whether it be Winterfell. It's very interesting. And in fact, I think this is actually something where John, having left the Night's Watch and Slash or because the Night's Watch has disbanded not really having a purpose without, you know, others. yeah, without the others there, uh, actually hurts him because then he doesn't have vows to fall back on that. His shield is gone, right? He was the shield that guarded the realms of men and that shield guarded him from being used like a political pawn like that. Yeah, you have paper shields, and then you have this as a shield, and there's no longer a shield for it. <laughs> yep, the wall is gone. John is suspicious, though, as to why he's received this history lesson. Yeah, Jor is like, Eamon and you share having kings as brothers. John says, also a vow. And Jor, though, has seen no lack of oathbreakers. I've always known that Rob will be the Lord of Winterfell. Mormont gave a whistle, and the bird flew to him again and settled on his arm. A lord's one thing, a king's another. He offered the raven a handful of corn from his pocket. They will garb your brother Rob in silk satins and velvets of a hundred different colors while you live and die in black ringmail. I mean, is that so bad? Anyways, he will wed some beautiful princess and father's sons on her. You'll have no wife, nor will you ever hold a child of your own blood in your arms. Rob will rule. You will serve. Men will call you a crow. Him. They'll call you a grace. Singers will praise every little thing he does while your greatest deeds all go unsung. Tell me that none of this troubles you, John. And I'll name you a liar. And I know I've the truth of it. John drew himself up, tout as a bowstring. And if it did trouble me, what might I do, bastard as I am? What will you do? 
Mormont asked. Bastard as you are. Be troubled, said John, and keep my vows. Aww. Aww. He's grown up! Yeah, he is. However, at the same time, there's a lot in this passage that's complete opposite, mm. right? Rob does not marry a beautiful princess. Mm-hmm. He does not father any sons. We learn Jane was being forced to drink tansy tea, moon tea, and swallow those aberrifacents and had no child. Rob dies at his at a, at a wedding, not his wedding. Rob dies at a wedding. Uh, no songs really have been written about him that we hear yet. Mm-hmm. And of course, John is handed duty at every single corner once we get to a dance with dragons. And Stannis wants him to rule. And there he turns it down again, too. Mm-hmm. He keeps his resolve for now. But we don't know what happens when he comes back from the dead, you know? We don't know. He doesn't pet his dog, first of all. And, I mean, yeah, I, I agree. Like, maybe if they do sing songs about Rob, they're all gonna be, like, real sad songs. None of his valor. I mean, so maybe, whatever. And, like, I'm definitely reading a bit too much into this, but in terms of the construction of this ending of John's chapter, I think it's kind of noteworthy that of the question that's asked, we don't get a cliffhanger from a mentor. Like, we don't have Aemon sadly saying in regards to choices, like, you gotta live with them as I have, as I have, in regards to all of those. It ends with John in this chapter. He gets the last line, the cool last line, and he's the one who made the decision in the last book to keep his vows, and he's sticking to that right here. Now, hmm. and I love J.R. calling John out on his love of songs and valor because we know from throughout these past few chapters that John loves the warriors from the legends. Um, you know, it, it's also even in that passage that you quoted where they pick who they're going to pretend to be. And of course, I think a lot of this talk of who gets valor and who remains in song, like you said, it's like Stannis. And then you also have J.R. drawing that distinction between ruling and serving, though it's interesting because I think some of the best kings that we see throughout Westerosi history are the ones who also kind of treated the role as being a servant to the realm. Yeah, because that's what political office should hold, especially when you're in charge of all these called civil service, public service. Yeah, absolutely. Public service. You are a public servant. Absolutely. And that's something a lot of these kings seem to forget, honestly. If this whole mystery can be solved in one book for John, which we've kind of seen that it could have in A Game of Thrones, this Clash of Kings passage adding on is super important. It's constructed purposefully for us to read mm. all of this exposition and world knowledge and for our brains, because our human brain is so spongy and we can only absorb so much. So your first read through of this book, you would read this passage and go, oh, there's so much goddamn Targaryen history in this. But... Now, after reading it handfuls of times, knowing what we know, this whole mystery could be solved after this chapter. He's a direct parallel to Aemon in most of the things that he does. His brother takes a crown. He has the opportunity to take his familial home back, but walks away, which is likely foreshadowing about what he will do when he's faced with the throne, in my opinion. In that Targaryen exposition, no reason at all, right? No reason that George is discussing this Targaryen exposition at all. Yeah, it's like you said, it's all those parallels, but also like, John, this is your family history as well. And he's like, I'm a teenage boy. Why did I get this history lecture? Yeah, just like uh, in John 8, when Eamon gives him that huge lecture and he straight up tells him about his siblings, his half siblings that he has no clue about. Yeah, Oh, yeah, that's true. So... It also goes back to that passage from A Storm of Swords, which we know ends with... John shouting out in the middle of battle, I'm the Lord of Winterfell, and Rob saying, you can't, 
You can't be. So we know there's this hurting. There's this pain in John, right? He he wants his family. Of course he wants the glory. Of course he wants to be like the songs. But he has been, you know, resolved to this is his life now and this is his duty and this is what he's chosen. Absolutely. And I think you see as he suffers more loss and sees what it really means to go on an adventure and lose the one you loved. It's not some sad, romantic story. It's painful for him, and he starts letting go of all of those songs. And his life just becomes a lot sad after that. It's almost like he loses hope. It's on in one hand maturity, but on the other hand not. Sometimes I think growing up can be a little bit of a balance of both. From my own experience. And in Storm of Swords, John 13, we get john's offering of winterfell and of course he's tempted right you get that part where he thinks about his friends out in the yard and he takes a bath and he thinks winterfell theon left it burnt and broken but i could restore it surely his father would have wanted that and rob as well they would never have wanted the castle left in ruins you can't be the lord of winterfell you're bastard born he heard rob say again and the stone kings were growling at him with granite tongues you do not belong here. This is not your place. When John closed his eyes, he saw the heart tree with its pale limbs, red leaves, and solemn face. The weirwood was the heart of Winterfell, Lord Eddard always said, but to save the castle, John would have to tear that heart up by its ancient roots and feed it to the red woman's hungry fire god. I have no right, he thought. Winterfell belongs to the old gods. It's so fascinating. A, yeah, it shows you the struggle of John's desires, but it also shows you how deeply loyal he is to uh, the rest of the Starks because Theon doesn't. Theon's like, yeah, I'm going to fucking take Winterfell. And then the idea that John is like, I can't because I'm bastard born. You know who didn't think that way? Ramsay Bolton. And I know that uh, John's all like Winterfell's ruin, but it's not ruined anymore thanks to Ramsay Bolton and Roose Bolton rebuilding it, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, in Dance, when Stannis is kind of being really bitter, I'm just going to skip over it. I mean, look, Ramsay avenged the Red Wedding. I don't know what you want with me. <laughs> That's it. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> in, uh, of course, in A Dance with Dragons in John 1, you get that chapter where Stannis is just like being Stannis about how John turned down Winterfell, right? He's like, oh, you shouldn't have turned down Winterfell. And he's still thinking, like, what if I had? What if I had? You still get all these thoughts for John of Maester Aemon. He still very much exists in A Dance with Dragons, and he still thinks about Maester Aemon often and Maester Aemon's plight. Interestingly enough, I love in John 2 in A Dance with Dragons, where John has that passage that he'd been up all night looking at the maps, writing letters, and making plans with Maester Aemon. And Maester Aemon says the same thing to him, that one last piece of counsel, the same counsel that he gave Egg when he departed from him. He was three and thirty when the great council chose him to mount the throne, a man grown with sons of his own, yet in some ways still a boy. Egg had an innocence to him, a sweetness we all loved. Kill the boy within you, I told him the day I took ship for the wall. It takes a man to rule, an Aegon, not an Egg. Mm. Kill the boy and let the man be born. The old man felt John's face. You are half the age Egg was, and your own burden is a crueler one, I fear. You have little joy of your command, but I think you have the strength in you to do the things that must be done. Kill the boy, John Snow. Winter is almost upon us. Kill the boy and let the man be born. And that's a big part of why John 
stays away from taking Winterfell as his own, right? He knows he has a bigger duty. He knows that he is one of the only commanders that can fight in the war to come and save people from the others, from the cold ones, from this oncoming threat. He does his duty, great or small. Mm -hmm. But like you said in The Bad Show, uh, the others are gone. There's no shield for Jon to fall behind. Now what happens when he has no duty left but to serve the realm? Yes. You can see it a little in the show in the previous seasons, but there's going to definitely be guilt on John's part if he is given Winterfell, I think. He's going to be like, I don't belong here. And he's going to maybe dream again of those old stone kings that you cited. And, I mean, in some ways, Aemon was right. John had the strength to try and live up to the duties of being Lord Commander. He had the strength to choose that as opposed to the things his heart wanted. I'm not sure if Eamon would have approved of John in John 10 being like, kill the boy, look at this, Maester Eamon. <laughs> Wash me. But. Yeah. Yeah. Eamon's like, not like that. But. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think of all these parallels with Eamon with, uh, you know, Aegon the Unlikely and Eamon and ruling and stepping away from the crown? I mean, the show has obviously heavy-handed it by giving us Jenny's song when it came to talk about John. I'm guessing that's the foreshadowing they're going for. They're going for, you know, a prince or a king giving up his crown. It's very heavy-handed in the show right now. So is that what we're looking at here? Is that the direct parallel to Eamon? Will John t- keep his vows that seriously, even in four books? Three books. How many books do we have left? We eight? have another eight Twelve? books left. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, you know, for a total of uh, 13 books, was the 13th Lord Commander, after all, who was the Night King. Um, I feel like you're leading me to an answer, Chloe. I'm not trying to. <laughs> I feel like you're leading me to an answer, Chloe. And as of this time, I have not read the leaks. The episode is not yet out as of recording, but everyone will have likely seen it, etc. by the time that you listen to this. So I feel, again, like you're leading me to an answer where John refuses everything. And on one hand, I think... I mean, I'm just literally talking about a scene in the show versus this scene in the book know. where they heavy-handedly reference it, so I, you don't have I to don't say it's that. It feels like you're telling me that John breaks the wheel. That's not the reason. <laughs> no, I'm joking. I'm joking, but like... The wheel was burnt down last episode. But like, but like uh, he breaks... I, I don't know. I, I've always had this feeling. I know that people like to theorize that Daenerys is pregnant, but I don't think she is. I think the whole point is both she and Jon are sterile. They're the end of the line. Uh, and... The end of the dragons. Yes, the last of the dragons. Just like the last of the giants. Wow. Anyways... I, I don't know. I don't know what happens with John, but what's I don't know. It, it feels. I mean, it's just so heavy handed. There's just yeah. obviously the first book was more focused on giving you that mystery of R plus L equals J. But now I'm starting to feel like all these class chapters that we're looking at are really heavy handedly just saying, what's John going to do? What's his choice? Is he going to take his vows and reject Winterfell or no? I would love it, though, if John did choose to reject Winterfell and choose to reject the Iron Throne because in that moment he finally gets to have a real choice sure mm-hmm. it's not power but like throughout the rest of his storyline as we've seen like he takes this vow because he he does have a choice but he feels like he doesn't and then in taking that vow and that duty 
his choices are limited. I, I mean, granted, yes, he's presented a choice every time and he always plays it right. And he kind of, in a way, gets forced to be Lord Commander. And yeah, that's forced true. into all of these other roles. And I think for him to choose not to take the Iron Throne, that's so different from... Uh, it's not that different, but like... It's finally him having power over his own life and his own story. He finds freedom then, rather than through the songs, by not being sung about. Yeah, he removes himself from the narrative. Yeah, he's no longer the Song of Ice and Fire, and in that, he's liberated. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, And in a way, it's almost like the refusal of that self-fulfilling prophecy, mm. right? It's the refusal to be that prince or be that king. Yeah. Uh, so... I don't know how it goes, but I think that the idea that he chooses not to is interesting. interesting. Well, I'll find out. We'll find out in like a minute. Yeah, absolutely. In a minute, honestly. We're uh, we're recording this two days before the series finale, so we're going to have some really uh, outlined, roughly outlined answers for the endgame, I guess, since George has said his endgame is pretty much going to be this endgame. So end it is kind of crazy that this show is coming to an end, right? Even if it is uh, awful... <laughs> Sometimes the dialogue just isn't great anymore, but the action, the cinematography, yeah. the beautiful scenes, the casting, the actors' work, the costuming, those sets, God, it's it's beautiful. The music is amazing, and it's going to be really sad, a, a big old empty hole right there of what we used to watch every Sunday together. So Yeah, but... And we know the end. That's a bummer. <laughs> but you know what's not going to end, and that we won't know the end of, everyone? This... The books. I was going to say our friendship, but that too, the books. <laughs> Fuck. I mean, everyone dies, Eliana. Uh, yeah, eventually. <laughs> I'm gonna hurtle into the sun. Oh my god. Alright. Okay, John Con Tried to grasp a star. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'm on it today yeah. with references, if you haven't noticed. You are. Wow. I'm on it. John Con oh. Snow. Oh my god. <laughs> Wait, isn't John Snow a John Con Because wow. he's not John, he's... A Con. Whatever his Targ name is. Um... John Khan. Again? <laughs> Ajon? Ajon Amon? Ajon Aries? Oh my god. <laughs> well, you guys, this has been a blast. We are glad that you joined us for this episode. We are going to start hurtling into some double chapter episodes and get that length rate back for you, get you some easy listening now that all the show content is going to die off a little bit for you. Probably not that hard, but hopefully you'll have some more room in your listening schedules. And we hope you enjoyed this episode. We will not have a Jon Snow episode next week, May 31st, the Friday release for the public. But we will be releasing something for the public. Stay tuned for that. It will be a nice surprise. And we do have a lot of really exciting stuff coming up in the next month or two. So stay tuned for that as well. We do. And of course, if you want to keep up with when all of those things come out, be sure to subscribe to us on social media. You can find us at Girls Gone Canon on Twitter, or you can shoot us an email at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. Yeah, absolutely. And if you haven't, take a look at our Patreon, patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. Patrons $5 and up get a special episode every single month. This month's episode is going to be about prophecy. We are very excited to talk about the many ways that prophecy exhibits itself in the story and chat it up. Uh, make sure if you have any questions, send us a message on Patreon for that, and we'd love to answer them in the episode. Yep. And of course, be sure to subscribe to us. You can find us on podbean on google play on itunes on spotify on acast or on stitcher and also i mean think think about maybe if you want to like 
leave us a rating or something on iTunes. Whatever. Do what your heart tells you. Eliana just wants you to leave her a rating on iTunes. It makes her so happy. It, it really doesn't. Sometimes it actually makes me really <laughs> sad when I see some of them. So whatever. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> As always, I have been one of your hosts, Chloe. And I have been another one of your hosts, Eliana. Thanks for listening, you guys. Bye. Agent Targaryen. <laughs> <laughs>